So <clears throat> last week, we continued to make some progress on verse 11. This will be our third week looking at verse 11. I think we'll actually finish it <laughs> this week, the Lord being my helper. So um, as Nick had mentioned during worship and the announcements, every single week when we get together, I am trying to go back over the concepts that we've already covered um, at least as an overview of what we've discussed. So that way, anybody should be able to join us and, and be caught up with where we're at today. So um, first and foremost, where am I you know, coming from? What's my foundation as um, an approach to the word of God? So um, throughout this study, we've been referencing Grasping God's Word by Scott Duvall and Danny Hayes. This is a really entry-level hermeneutics textbook. Um, it was written uh, with a design for it to be taught to freshmen in college to learn how to read God's Word. And they have a very simple five-step approach to reading and interpreting the Scriptures. So the very first thing that we want to do when we go to God's Word is understand what it meant to the original audience, or as Duval and Hayes call it, grasping the text in their town. What did it mean to them? Right? We can't begin to understand what it must mean for us today unless we first understand what it meant to them. And then the second step is measuring the distance between them and us. And you see we've got this image here with a river between kind of a biblical village and a modern-day town. And it's got culture, language, time, situation, things like place and redemptive history. What are the differences between them and us, right? There is the possibility that this text could have meant something to them that it no longer means to us today. So understanding what that difference is before we go to step number three, which is crossing the principalizing bridge. So now that we understand what the text meant to the original audience, we understand how we're different from the original audience. We can then take the principle, right, as it was applied in their context, and understand uh, what kind of principles may be applying to us today in our contemporary world. Then the fourth step, consulting the biblical map. Right? At this point, we're taking the principle that we've drawn out of Scripture and we're holding it against the rest of Scripture. Right? We believe that Scripture interprets Scripture. Okay, So it may be possible to come up with some really crazy interpretation of one particular passage, right? but when we hold it up against the rest of God's Word, does it still stand? And likewise, we're not just comparing and contrasting it against the rest of Scripture, but we're holding it against the traditional historic understanding of that Scripture um, by the church over the last 2,000 years. And then the fifth step, finally, now that we understand what is the principle that transcends context, how do we apply it to our lives today, grasping the text in our town? So a quick review of what we've seen thus far um, from our, our time in Jude. We've been asking several questions. First question that we asked when we met together is, who is the author? Right? And we determined that the author is Jude, the brother of James, who was the first bishop in Jerusalem, also the brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we understand that he came to believe in Jesus and his gospel sometime after the resurrection, but before Pentecost. And he was serving as an itinerant preacher among the churches in Galilee. The second question that we asked, who was Jude's intended audience? We looked at several different variables here, different possibilities of folks that Jude may be writing to. 
He was pretty broad in his introduction to the epistle. But we concluded that he's writing to first-generation Jewish Christians living in Galilee among the churches that had been planted by the apostles themselves. The third question that we asked is, what is the genre, right? The Bible is made up of lots of different genres. We have the Gospels, for example. We also have poetry and wisdom literature. Jude uh, specifically is a Jewish apocalyptic genre. It was very popular in the first century in Palestine among Jews before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And Jude is steeped in Greek speech rhetoric, as well as Jewish Midrash and Pesher hermeneutics. The fourth question we asked is, what was the date when Jude was written? We looked at a lot of different factors to basically narrow it down to a 10-year window between 48 and 58 AD, which makes Jude one of the very first books of the New Testament to be written and disseminated. What was Jude's purpose for writing? Well, Jude is explicit on this in a way that he wasn't as explicit in terms of his intended audience. He tells them of his longstanding intention to communicate with them, but that's been made even more urgent now by a crisis, right, that's arisen in the churches. He's wishing to urge his audience to contend for the faith once for all handed down by the apostles and delivered directly to his audience by the apostles themselves. So then Jude begins to tell us a little more about the crisis that's arisen in the church. He has some opponents who are going around the churches in Galilee. He says that long ago they were destined for condemnation, and he seems to believe that they were subjects of prophetic condemnation going way back in history, and he has identified that in this book of First Enoch. He calls them ungodly people, right, which... Um, that's a term that shows up a lot in First Enoch. It also shows up elsewhere in the Greek translation of the Old Testament known as the Septuagint. And it's always contrasted against the righteous. There's the righteous and there's the ungodly. And here Jude is emphasizing his opponent's antinomianism. In other words, they are against the law of God that was given by Moses. Third, he tells us that they are perverting grace into sensuality which most certainly means that they're using grace as a license to engage in illicit sexual practices. And then fourth, he says that they deny Jesus Christ. Rather than submitting to Jesus' authority, they have become a law unto themselves. Jesus says in the gospel, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So then Jude provides us with three historic examples of how God historically responded to such things. First, he tells us about the unbelieving after the Exodus. And we have an account of this in Numbers 13 and 14. These people who had come out of Egypt are now in the wilderness have become faithless. Right? They don't believe in the power or the command of God. They're rejecting his authority and provoking God's wrath and punishment against them. The second example that he gives to us is that of the fallen angels. And here he's referring to um, an episode that that is very brief at the beginning of Genesis chapter 6, but then is expanded upon greatly right, in this apocryphal book of 1 Enoch in the 6th through 11th chapters. 
these fallen angels rebel against God, right? Abandoning his creational purposes for them, they actually have sexual relationships with human women, right? And then they teach and encourage humanity, right, to also reject God's authority in their lives, which provokes God's wrath and punishment. And then 30 gives us the example of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, whose sexual immorality and pursuit of unnatural desires provoked God's wrath and punishment. So we're starting to see a theme here of what happens when these sort of things arise. So then Jude brings indictments specifically against his opponents in these churches. First, he calls them dreamers. And it was definitely intended by Jude in a pejorative way. Okay, his opponents seem to be citing some sort of special revelation through their own dreams, right? And their dreams have become a source of final authority for them in issues of doctrine and ethics. But this is contradicting, right, the scriptures and the apostolic faith. Second, he says that they defile the flesh. Now, this phrase appears repeatedly in First Enoch, which Jude is relying upon heavily as a source. Right? And in First Enoch, it's used to describe the sinful rebellion of the angels against God through abominable sexual acts. Jude is most certainly using it here to further address his opponent's sexual sin. In this, they're like both the fallen angels and the men of Sodom and Gomorrah, and Jude expects that God's going to handle them similarly. Okay. Third, he says that they reject authority. So Jews' opponents are like both the post-Exodus Israelites and the fallen angels in that they fail to acknowledge their role in the order of God's creation. Rather than submitting to their rightful position in obedience to God, they subvert his authority and the authoritative teachings of Jesus in order to pursue their own desires. Fourth, Jude tells us that his opponents blaspheme the glorious ones. So Jude's opponents claim to receive divine revelation that explicitly contradicts the divine revelation of the law and the gospel found in the scriptures and in the apostolic faith, which has been once for all handed down. God is not subject to change. They're claiming divine authority to challenge the apostles, the prophets, Moses, and even Christ himself. And this leads Jude to a cryptic reference about the archangel Michael, who contended with the devil over Moses' body. Now, that story doesn't exist in our canon of Scripture, and we're told by ancient sources that it was an account from the pseudepigraphal assumption of Moses, of which no complete manuscripts exist today. Now, his main point here is to indicate that even the archangel didn't claim personal authority to bring judgment against the devil. Rather, he said, the Lord rebuke you. So Jude offers this final indictment that you can see up on the, uh, the slide to, uh, here. Right? In a rather poetic form, he contrasts their blindness to the truth of God's word against their immersive and indeed animal-like knowledge of all things carnal. And then Jude compares right, uh, or likens his opponents to some other historical figures. Uh, first, he says that they walk in the way of Cain, and this is where we settled down last week. This was a reference back to the story right, that exists in Genesis 4, an anger and rebellion against God's judgment, right? Cain and 
likewise, Jude's opponents challenge God's authority in order to live according to their own desires, and they encourage others to do the same. So today we're going to pick up with the second and third historical figures that Jude lists out, uh, Balaam and Korah. So let's pray. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of your holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you've given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. So we're going to turn together to the account of Balaam, which is found in Numbers, chapters 22 through 24. And let's read that together. Then the people of Israel set out and camped in the plains of Moab, beyond the Jordan at Jericho. And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was in great dread of the people because they were many. Moab was overcome with fear of the people of Israel. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, This horde will now lick up all that is around us as the ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, the son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at the time, sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the people of Ammah, to call him, saying, Behold, A people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth and they're dwelling opposite me. Come now, curse this people for me since they are too many for me, too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land for I know that he whom you bless is blessed and he whom you curse is cursed. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with fees for divination in their hand. And they came to Balaam and gave him Balak's message. And he said to them, Lodge here tonight, and I'll bring back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam. And God came to Balaam and said, Who are these men with you? And Balaam said to God, Balak, the son of Zippor, the king of Moab, has sent to me, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt, and it covers the face of the earth. Now come. Curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to fight against them and drive them out. God said to Balaam, You shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they're blessed. So Balaam rose in the morning and said to the princes of Balak, Go to your own land, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. So the princes of Moab rose and went to Balak, and they said, Balaam refuses to come with us. Once again, Balak sent princes more in number and more honorable than these. And they came to Balaam and said to him, Thus says Balak, the son of Zippor, Let nothing hinder you from coming to me, for I will surely do you great honor. And whatever you say to me, I will do. Come, curse this people for me. But Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the command of the Lord my God to do less or more. 
So you too, please, stay here tonight that I may know what more the Lord will say to me. And God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men have come to call you, rise, go with them, but only do what I tell you. So Balaam rose in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the princes of Moab. But God's anger was kindled because he went. And the angel of the Lord took his stand on the way as his adversary. Now he was riding on the donkey, and the two servants were with him. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the road and went into the field. And Balaam struck the donkey to turn her onto the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in the narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on either side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed up against the wall, and she pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. Then the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn, either to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. And Balaam's anger was kindled, and he struck the donkey with his staff. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you've struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, Because you have made a fool of me. I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. The donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And he said, No. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. And he bowed down and fell on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to oppose you because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside before me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely just now... I would have killed you and let her live. Then Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I've sinned, for I did not know that you stood in the road against me. Now therefore, if it's evil in your sight, I will turn back. The angel of the Lord said to Balaam, Go with these men, but speak only the word that I tell you. So Balaam went on with the princes of Balak. And when Balak heard that Balaam had come, he went out to meet him at the city of Moab, on the border formed by the Arnon, at the extremity of the border. And Balak said to Balaam, Did I not send to you to call you? Why did you not come to me? Am I not able to honor you? Balaam said to Balak, Behold, I have come to you. Have I now any power of my own to speak anything? The word that God puts in my mouth, that I must speak. Then Balaam went with Balak, and they came to Kiriath Husoth. And Balak sacrificed oxen and sheep, and sent for Balaam and for the princes who were with him. Now in the morning, Balak took Balaam and brought him up to Bamoth Baal. And from there, he saw a fraction of the people. And Balaam said to Balak, Build for me here seven altars, and prepare for me here seven bulls and seven rams. So Balak did as Balaam had said, and Balak and Balaam 
offered on each altar a bull and a ram. And Balaam said to Balak, Stand beside your burnt offerings, and I will go. Perhaps the Lord will come to meet me, and whatever he shows me, I will tell you. And he went to a bear height, and God met Balaam. And Balaam said to him, I have arranged the seven altars, and I have offered on each altar a bull and a ram. And the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth, and he said, Return to Balak, and thus you shall speak. And he returned to him, and behold, he and all the princes of Moab were standing beside his burnt offering. And Balaam took up his discourse and said, From Aram Balak has brought me, the king of Moab from the eastern mountains. Come, curse Jacob for me, and come denounce Israel. How can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom God the Lord has not denounced? For from the top of the crags I see him, from the hills I behold him. Behold, a people dwelling alone and not counting itself among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the upright and let my end be like his. And Balak said to Balaam, what have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies and behold, you have done nothing but bless them. And he answered and said, Must I not take care to speak what the Lord puts in my mouth? And Balak said to him, Please, come with me to another place from which you may see them. You shall see only a fraction of them, and I shall not see them at all. Then curse them for me from there. And he took him to the field of Zophim, to the top of Pishkah. And he built seven altars and offered a bull and a ram on each altar. And Balaam said to Balak, Stand here beside your burnt offering while I meet the Lord over there. And the Lord met Balaam and put a word in his mouth and said, Return to Balak, and thus shall you speak. And he came to him, and behold, he was standing beside his burnt offering. And when the princes of Moab with him, and Balak said to him, What has the Lord spoken? And Balaam took up his discourse, and he said, Rise, Balak, and hear Give ear to me, O son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, or son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Behold, I received a command to bless. He is blessed, and I cannot revoke it. He has not beheld misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. The Lord their God is with them. And the shout of a king is among them. God brings them out of Egypt and is for them like the horns of a wild ox. For there is no enchantment against Jacob, no divination against Israel. Now it shall be said of Jacob and Israel, what is God wrought? Behold a people as a lioness, it rises up as a lion, it lifts itself. It does not lie down until it has devoured the prey and drunk the blood of the slain. And Balak said to Balaam, Do not curse them at all, only do not bless them either. But Balaam answered Balak, Did I not tell you all that the Lord says that I must do? And Balak said to Balaam, Come now, I will take you to another place. Perhaps it will please God that you may curse them for me from there. 
So Balak took Balaam to the top of Peor, which overlooks the desert. And Balaam said to Balak, Build for me here seven altars, and prepare for me here seven bulls and seven rams. And Balak did as Balaam had said, and he offered a bull and a ram on each altar. When Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not go, as at the other times, to look for omens, but set his face toward the wilderness. And Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel camping tribe by tribe. And the Spirit of God came upon them. And he took up his discourse, and he said, The oracle of Balaam the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, The oracle of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your encampments, O Israel, like palm groves that stretch afar, like gardens beside a river, like aloes that the Lord has planted, like cedar trees beside the waters. Water shall flow from his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters." His king shall be higher than Agog, and his kingdom shall be exalted. God brings him out of Egypt and is for him like the horns of the wild ox. He shall eat up the nations, his adversaries, and shall break their bones in pieces and pierce them through with his arrows. He crouched, he lay down like a lion and like a lioness who will rouse him up. Blessed are those who bless you, and cursed are those who curse you. And Balak's anger was kindled against Balaam, and he struck his hands together. And Balak said to Balaam, I called you here to curse my enemies, but behold, you've blessed them these three times. Therefore now, flee to your own place. I said, I will certainly honor you, but the Lord has held you back from honor. And Balaam said to Balak, Did I not tell your messengers whom you sent to me, if Balak should give me his house full of silver and gold, I would not be able to go beyond the word of the Lord to do either good or bad of my own will? What the Lord speaks, that will I speak. And now behold, I'm going to my people. Come, I will let you know what this people will do to your people in the latter days. And he took up his discourse and said, the oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab, and break down all the sons of Sheph. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also, his enemies, shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly. And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. Then he looked on Amalek and took up his discourse and said, Amalek was the first among the nations, but its end is utter destruction. And he looked on the Kenites took up his discourse and said, Enduring is your dwelling place, and your nest is set in the rock. Nevertheless, Cain shall be burned when Ashur takes you away captive. And he took up his discourse and said, Alas, who shall live when God does this? 
But ships shall come from Katim and shall afflict Ashur and Heber, and he too shall come to utter destruction. Then Baalam rose and went back to his place, and Balak also went his way. Okay, so what exactly was Balaam's error? For the contemporary reader of Numbers 22 through 24, it's extremely difficult to ascertain what exactly did he do wrong. When the elders of Moab and Midian first presented Balak's proposition to Baalam, he spent the evening discerning God's will. And the following morning, he did exactly what God told him to do. When the princes of Moab and Midian came, promising even more than the elders had previously promised, it seems fairly clear that God told Baalam to go with them, with the caveat, but only do what I tell you. So it's curious the next day when we're told that God was angry with Baalam. It seems like he's done exactly what he was told to do. Now, it's difficult to ascertain from the text here exactly what Baalam had done to entice God's wrath. But at the conclusion of the scene with the angel and the donkey, Baalam offers to turn around and go home. Oddly, the angel repeats the instructions that Baalam seemed to have been following all along. Go with the men, but speak only the word that I tell you. So when he meets with Balak, Baalam instructs the king to build seven altars and to sacrifice one bull and one ram on each altar. And upon completion of this task, Balak returns to Baalam, expecting the prophet now to curse Israel. His expectations, however, are sorely disappointed. How can I curse what God has not cursed? Asked Baalam. Not a man to accept no, Balak takes Balaam to another high place to see what a foreboding menace the Israelites pose, hoping for a different result this time. Another seven altars are built, and another seven bulls and seven rams sacrificed on each. And Balaam speaks God's counsel again. Again, a blessing is spoken over Israel. But unwilling to accept defeat, Balak takes Balaam to a third high place. Another seven altars are constructed, another seven bulls and seven rams are sacrificed on each, and a third time Israel is blessed and not cursed. Balaam prophesies the utter destruction of Moab, Edom, Amalek, and then he returns home. So to the contemporary reader, it seems like Balaam was obedient to God's instruction and was unwilling to curse Israel. However, if we skip forward to chapter 31, we discover that there is more to the story. After winning a war against the Midianites, Moses is angry with the officers of the army for sparing the lives of the Midianite women. We're told in Numbers 31, 15 through 16, Moses said to them, Have you let all the women live? Behold, these, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident at Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. So John, in his revelation, sheds further light on this when he writes, I have a few things against you. 
you have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. Now, this is a common rabbinical interpretation of the text, and it's corroborated by Josephus in his Jewish antiquity. So I'm going to read to you from Josephus. Balak, being very angry that the Israelites were not cursed, sent away Balaam without thinking him worthy of any honor. Whereupon, when he was just upon his journey in order to pass the Euphrates, he sent for Balak and for the princes of the Midianites and spake thus to them. O Balak and you Midianites that are here present, for I'm obliged even without the will of God to gratify you. Tis true. No entire destruction can seize upon the nation of the Hebrews, neither by war, nor by plague, nor by scarcity of the fruits of the earth, nor can any other unexpected accident be their entire ruin. For the providence of God is concerned to preserve them from such a misfortune, nor will it permit any such calamity to come upon them, whereby they may all perish. But some small misfortunes, And those for some small time, whereby they may appear to be brought low, may still befall them. But after that, they will flourish again to the terror of those that brought those mischiefs upon them. So that if you have a mind to gain a victory over them for a short space of time, you will obey it by following my directions. Do you therefore set out the comeliness of such of your daughters as are most eminent for beauty and proper to force and conquer the modesty of those that behold them. And these, decked and trimmed to the highest degree, you are able. Then do you send them to be near the Israelite camp and give them in charge that when the young men of the Hebrews desire their company, they allow it them. And when they see that they are enamored of them, let them take their leaves And if they entreat them to stay, let them not give their consent till they have persuaded them to leave off their obedience to their own laws and the worship of that God who established them and to worship the gods of the Midianites and the Moabites for this, by this means, God will be angry with them. Accordingly, when Balaam had suggested counsel to them, he went away. This interpretation, which is validated in the New Testament, provides context for the events portrayed in Numbers 25. Upon the advice of Balaam, Balak had the Midianites send their daughters to seduce the sons of Israel, both to their beds and to the worship of their god, Baal. And I'll read from that text now. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to sacrifice of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you, Kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. 
And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. And when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he rose and he left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them. The man of Israel and the woman threw her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. And the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. Now the name of the slain man of Israel who was killed with the Midianite woman was Zimri, son of Salu, chief of a father's house, belonging to the Simeonites. And the name of the Midianite woman who was killed was Cosby, the daughter of Zor who was the tribal head of a father's house in Midian. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Harass the Midianites and strike them down, for they have harassed you with their wiles, with which they beguiled you in the matter of Peor and in the matter of Cosby, the daughter of the chief of Midian, their sister, who was killed on the day of the plague on account of Peor. So why... After blessing Israel three times, and now, well on his way home, would Balaam turn around and make the suggestion to Balak? We have two ancient sources that offer us some insight. First, Philo of Alexandria, writing in the first uh, century. He writes, On the life of Moses, Balaam, being allured by the gifts which were already proffered to him, and also by the hopes of the future which they held out to him, and being influenced also by the rank of those who invited him, began to yield, again alleging the commands of the deity as his excuse, but no longer with sincerity. Second, from the Mishnah. Now, the Mishnah is a collection of rabbinical oral traditions and interpretations of the Torah. Now, they were collected in written form around the same time that the New Testament was being compiled. The Mishnah is made up of six different sections of the law, and Avot, which I'm going to be quoting um, here in a moment, uh, it's translated, The Fathers, is a book uh, within that fourth section, and it functions as a compilation of the traditional rabbinical teachings and maxims, particularly about ethics. So in Mishnah, about 5.19, we're told, Whoever possesses these three things, he is a disciple of Abraham, our father. And whoever possesses three other things, he is of the disciples of Balaam, the wicked. A good eye, a humble spirit, and a moderate appetite, he is of the disciples of Abraham, our father. An evil eye, a haughty spirit, and a limitless appetite. He is of the disciples of Balaam, the wicked. What is the difference between the disciples of Abraham, our father, and the disciples of Balaam, the wicked? The disciples of Abraham, our father, enjoy this world and inherit the world to come, as it is said, 
I will endow those who love me with substance. I will fill their treasures. But the disciples of Balaam the wicked inherit Gehenna and descend into the nethermost pit, as it is said. For you, O God, will bring them down to the nethermost pit, those murderous and treacherous men. They shall not live out half their days, but I trust in you. About this, Ben Witherington writes, In the first century Jewish tradition, Balaam's main flaw was encouraging Balak to entice Israel to sin, in particular, some sexual sin. He was seen as particularly notorious because he did his prophesying for pay. Thus, he was a greedy seducer of Israel. And this description fits Jude's view of the false teachers. Richard Bauckham concurs in his commentary. He writes that Jewish tradition remembered Balaam primarily as a man of greed, who for the sake of reward led Israel into debauchery and idolatry. The parallel with Jude's opponents will be that, like Balaam, they were enticing the people of God into sexual immorality, and in doing so because they received financial reward for their teaching. It may also be relevant that Balaam was, in some sense, a prophet who received revelation and dreams and visions. And this leads us to Jude's third historical figure, Korah, of whom we may read in Numbers. Now, Korah, the son of Esar, the son of Kohiah, son of Levi, and Dathan, and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, well-known men. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far. For all in the congregation, you are holy, every one of them. And the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? When Moses heard it, he fell on his face and said to Korah and all his company, In the morning the Lord will show who who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses, he will bring near to him. Do this. Take censers. Korah and all his company put fire in them and put incense on them before the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the holy one. You have gone too far, sons of Levi. And Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi. Is it too small a thing for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do service in the tabernacle of the Lord, and to stand before the congregation to minister to them? And that he has brought you near to him, and all your brothers, the sons of Levi, with you. And would you seek the priesthood also? Therefore, it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. What is Aaron that you grumble against him? And Moses sent to call Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and they said, We will not come up. Is it a small thing that you have brought us up out of the land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness, that you must also make yourself a prince over us? Moreover, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey. Or given us inheritance of fields and vineyards. We put out the eyes of these men. We will not come. 
And Moses was very angry and said to the Lord, Do not respect their offering. I have not taken one donkey from them, and I have not harmed any one of them. And Moses said to Korah, Be present, you and all your company before the Lord, you and they and Aaron tomorrow. And let every one of you take his censer and put incense in it, and every one of you bring before the Lord his censer, 250 censers, you also, and Aaron each his censer. So every man took a censer and put fire in them and laid incense on them and stood at the entrance of the tent of meeting with Moses and Aaron. Then Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin? And will you be angry with all the congregation? And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Say to the congregation, Get away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Then Moses rose and went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed them. And he spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart, please, from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be swept away with all their sins. So they got away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the door of their tents, together with their wives, their sons, and their little ones. And Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me, to do all these works, and all that has not been of my own accord. If these men die as all men die, or if they are visited by their fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something new, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into Sheol, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. And as soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods, so that they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And all Israel who were around them fled at their cry, for they said, Lest the earth swallow us up. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering the incense. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, to take up the censers out of the blaze. Then scatter the fire far and wide, for they have become holy. As for the censers of these men who have sinned at the cost of their lives, let them be made into hammered plates as a covering for the altar. For they offered them before the Lord, and they became holy. Thus they shall be assigned to the people of Israel. So Eleazar the priest took the bronze censers which those uh, who were burned had offered, and they were hammered out as a covering for the altar, to be a reminder to the people of Israel, so that no outsider who is not of the descendants of Aaron should draw near to burn incense before the Lord, lest he become like Korah and his company, as the Lord said to him through Moses." Right, so we're going to skip a little bit ahead here because I think that we've got the gist of this. The story falls shortly on the heels of God's declaration of judgment that an entire generation of Israel should wander in the wilderness and die for their faithlessness and rebellion, refusing to enter and take the land of Canaan. 
So incensed by their sentence, rather than grieving their sin and repenting, the people blame Moses and accuse him of lording over them. Now this ought to seem familiar to those of you who were with me last week. It sounds an awful lot like Cain, who became angry when God rejected his half-hearted offering. And in his anger, he murdered his brother, bringing the condemnation of God. And then, still, rather than repenting, Cain doubled down on his wickedness, rebelling against God and enticing others to join him in his sin. Rather than submitting to the authority of God's judgment delivered through Moses, the leaders of the tribe of Levi and the tribe of Reuben declare autonomy. Moses addresses Korah, who is a Levite, separately from Dathan and Abiram, who were Reubenites. Korah's claim is as a fellow Levite, challenging Moses as the authority over Israel. Dathan and Abiram emphasize right, the autonomy of every individual within the community, rejecting all Levitical authority, even refusing to attend Moses' challenge at the tabernacle to see whom God favors. Korah's claim is as a fellow Levite. Dathan and Abiram, again, write their Reubenites. Like with Sodom and Gomorrah, God's intent was to execute judgment on the whole people, but Moses and Aaron intercede for God's mercy on the innocent. Assenting, God commands his representative to warn the people of the coming judgment, to separate themselves from the guilty. Everyone who failed to heed the warning died. Even after witnessing the judgment of God against the rebels, the whole congregation still grumbled. Again, Moses and Aaron interceded and made atonement to save the people from the wrath of God. Jude is referencing this story as an illustration of the attitudes and behavior of his own opponents and as a demonstration of the judgment that awaits them. It's also his intent to demonstrate to his audience a model as established by Moses and Aaron for dealing with those who reject authority and rebel against God's law. First, teach everything that God has commanded. Second, warn those who are in error. Third, separate from those who persist. Fourth, intercede on their behalf. And then fifth, leave the work of judgment to God. So we've got three examples provided to us here. Cain was a rebel who did not believe God's judgment would come. He challenged God's authority in order to live according to his own greed and lust, enticing others to join in his sin. Balaam was a prophet for money, enticing others to join him in sin for his own financial gain. Korah was a priest whose pride led him to reject godly authority enticing others to join in his rebellion, bringing disaster upon the whole congregation. And we'll conclude there. Next week when we get together, we're going to pick up with several um, illustrations that Jude provides to us about his opponents. So thanks, everybody.